Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I bring you a message today from the people of Ireland. The eyes desire peace with England and with the rest of the world. It is a question of a republic. We want the creation of a new Ireland. I wish to talk to you this evening about the state of the nation's I wish to talk to you this evening about the state Welcome to the History of Ireland. I have something a little different for you today that I'm super excited to share. Harry Boland is one of those people who has kind of slipped off our radar and has not really been discussed much on the show. Not because he's not important, more just because, well, there's only so much I can cover in 10 to 20 minute episodes. But to rectify this omission, and it is a big omission, Harry Boland was super important, I decided to get a little help from Kevin Blarney, one of the hosts of Shite Talk History. It's a great podcast that focuses on some of the weirder, funnier sides of Irish history. I really highly recommend it. And it felt right, because Boland was a real fun, gregarious guy who seemed to just be loved by everyone. I have to say, that's much how I'd describe Blarney. So what follows is not your usual show. Instead, it's a fairly freewheeling conversation that covers the life of the mighty Harry Boland. I hope you enjoy. And Harry Boland's the topic. Yes, let's do it. We're going to talk about it. <laughs> let's go talk about Harry Boland. We're here. Let's do it. This is the History of Ireland yes. and Shy Talk History crossover episode. Oh, yeah. We've been working on it for seven months. I'd say working on it or procrastinating it is really depending oh, on how yeah. you want to look at well, it. Though I, I, can, I can't procrastinate as part of the work process. It's all, it's all part uh, of the process. So will we shall we introduce my name is Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good introduction. Well, I'm I'm one of the two people that run Shite Talk, an Irish history podcast, which is um this is sort of name you come up with when you're fifteen, but it works <laughs> some <laughs> sometimes. And yeah, we kind of cover every every aspect. I'm just trying to think of the last couple of episodes we've just been about. We did one about Joe Dolan. Uh, we've been doing a lot of Irish mythology stuff over the summer. We kind of took the summer off and did a lot of myth stuff cool. to, uh, to keep ourselves occupied. But you're you're hyper focused on one specific period of Irish. Yeah, history. I feel so. My name is Kevin. I do <laughs> <laughs> the imaginatively named. History of Ireland podcast, uh, yeah. which is also probably a name you would come up with when you were 15. And yeah, I love your show because you you guys bounce around and find sort of the fun, interesting little bits from all over. Me, yeah. I was quite methodical. I was quite boring in that I wanted something that was very chronological. I, I had found that a lot of shows or a lot of documentaries took a lot for granted and jumped around, like you're 1916 yeah. and then your Civil War and then 
it kind of, they didn't fill out the details. And I, I love getting into the, the, the really specific stories that happened in this not so period that is sort of 1917 through to 1922. I, I thought I would do maybe 10 episodes on that period. I'm now, I don't know, coming up close on maybe 80, 100. Um, yeah. And still only at 1922. I think we've covered about five years. But yeah, that's the show. <laughs> I think we've both, the two shows have been running for it's about the same time. Yeah, I think four yeah. years, four and a bit years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is mad. I, well, because for listeners to know, this is not our first time on a radio show together. We did a, a, a great show way back in the day in Dublin City University. Um, and I thought it was so funny. I'd come up with this original idea for let's do a history, Irish history podcast. There are many others. Um, and then I found out that my mate, also known Kevin, was also doing an Irish history podcast. <laughs> Which I don't know what the odds of that are. Well, you were living in Australia at the time. Yeah, just to, to make things even more confusing. Yes. But we both went to different sides of the world. And uh, maybe Liam copped on first. I was like, oh yeah, the two. I think so. <laughs> Both Kevins have gone off to different <laughs> continents and uh, started Irish history podcasts at the same time. But um, yeah, but now we've come back together to Beautiful. Uh, talk about Harry Boland. Yeah, well, the reason I wanted to, to talk about Harry Boland, because he's, with a, a, a short 15-minute podcast like mine, even though it's quite detailed, some people get left on the chopping floor. And sadly, and maybe it was a bad take on my own part, poor Harry Boland is one of those people that I haven't touched on at all in the show. And yeah. he's a fascinating guy. Uh, he seems like one of the most fun, friendly revolutionaries from the period. So I thought it would be a good one to do with a comedian like yourself. Sure. He's, he's almost the definition of a guy getting left on the editing floor. Like he's... His whole persona seems to be just being second fiddle to, yeah. <laughs> like, either Dev and, well, I guess he seems close to Dev and Collins. Well, we'll get into it, I suppose, but different yeah. ways. You know, he's yeah. kind of in both of their shadows and he only seems to exist in the context of one of those two men. Even more so than the likes of, I feel like even Richard Mulcahy, who is the, like, I always think of the, the guy in the shadows or the guy who gets overshadowed. Yeah. Even... Richard Mulcahy overshadows poor Boland. Uh, but Boland is his own, he is his own interesting bits. Yeah. We'll, Let's we'll do talk. it. Did you, did you want to, I, I only, I literally only realized this when we started this call, like our Facebook page, which, you know, we never use. Uh, the cover photo is Harry Boland, <laughs> Mike Collins and Devil Era. I, in all the time we were talking about this, I only copped that on. That's ago. so funny. Yeah, it's a great photo. There's the three of them just look at them. Three happy boys. And he does just look like the happiest of them. He looks devilish, I always think. He does. He looks there like he's doing an impression of somebody for the two lads. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So we will get started with him, I guess. Yes. So he was a Fibsborough lad. Um, and his parents were actually both born in Manchester, if I have that right. Um, but he came from old Fenian stock. A really interesting little note I found was his great granddad on his mother's side, uh, James Wood, was actually involved in the 1798 rising. 
And Boland used that name, James Wood, anytime he traveled through the States or uh, wanted to hide himself. So he really, yeah. I think he had a real sense that he held his, his grandfather up and his, his father was involved in some IRB stuff as well. And I think he really wanted to emulate them. And so like a lot of lads in his time, he got quite heavily involved in the GAA and through that got into that kind of revolutionary movement. The whole family were in on it. The, his, his mother, his sister, his brother um, were all big fans of the old republicanism. He had an interesting, and we'll, if we jump straight to the rising, he had quite an interesting rising. He missed the start. There's stories that he was at the races um, on the Monday and yeah. was kind of him, him and Hohn whether he was going to get involved. He knew that it was, it was going on and more so than other people. He was in the IRB at this point and quite connected to that. When the, the volunteers had split, Boland had stayed part of the, vo- the volunteers, but you know, that side that didn't uh, go with Redmond. Yes. So Harry didn't side with Redmond um, and sort of stayed in that small, more militant subsection of the volunteers. And so, yeah, was quite heavily involved yeah. in the IRB and knew the rising was coming, but he still missed the start because the races were on. Which is um, funny, just people's idea of the revolutionaries from that time. I always think of them as being like, you know, you go into any old pub and all of their faces are bronzed up there together as if they're just one big coherent team. When really it's like this hodgepodge of, you know, leftist socialist ideas and just fringe elements living in the city and then their followers. Yeah, like the majority of the troops at the time head off at Redmond to go fight in World War One and show those Huns what for. And then the guys that are left behind of that are like the real fringe of the fringe, like, you know. Yeah, the real fringe of the fringe. Fringe of the fringe. And even of them, not all of them are involved in the rising. So it's like the real, the people who actually show up are like (laughs) such a small part of even the, even to be joining a military, like a fake military and marching around, you've got to be pretty out there. And this is the section of the out there folk who didn't go to the war. Uh, and even of that, it's the subsection of those guys who actually. And I think know, that was, that was the, did something. And I think that was the thing. Boland was always very much in the sub subsection of extremists. And um, sure. With a family like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, the whole family was like the history of it. Um, and he, so he spent most of the rising smashing through a bunch of uh, shops and houses to build a tunnel from one area to the other. Um, yeah. And was going along, getting that done, and then eventually was just told to surrender. So he had a bit of a weird yeah. uh, rising. Um, what was there's there's one quote from his biography that he was like he had been fired on by his comrades, accused of desertion, implicitly rebuked for obeying an order to retreat, primed for suicidal mission, only be ordered to surrender, it, and assigned the inglorious task of smashing, tunneling, and sewering. Okay. So yeah. a lot of fun, but, but even then everyone talks about how good natured he was, how optimistic he was, his energy, um, and how much fun he was that he <laughs> yeah. really, he, he really seemed to, to gain a lot of followers or got a clout in that rising, even as a small sort of foot soldier that he was. Yeah. Just for being good crack. Just for being good crack. Exactly. Um, Fair enough. 
And so then he, he got arrested like a lot of them. And again, similarly to the likes of Collins, it was within the prisons that, again, that good natured energy sort of shone through and people sort of marked him as this guy will go places within the Republican movement. And, yeah, yeah. and so he came back out in 1917 as a bit of a, it had done wonders for his Republican career getting locked up. Yeah, which is such a, um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's exactly what you wouldn't want to be doing if you're like putting down a rebellion, you know, all credit to the British Empire. You go in, boats, shoot everybody, execute the leaders. Don't, and then you round up the rest of the guys and just put them together in a camp. And again, the yeah. most extreme. Basically unsupervised. Ex- yeah, and the most extreme, extreme yeah. lads fringe lads who before had kind of had to meet in secret or didn't sure. even know who was in on side, put them all yeah. in a big clubhouse for a few years. Um, yeah. And I, I read somewhere that he, again, he gained credit for pulling tricks on the guards and just being annoying. Um, it does seem like they're just let sort of, you know, run military drills, practice speaking Irish, get up to hijinks. I could imagine it. I could imagine it. A great like, hello, hello meets mashed sitcom meets Black Adder yeah. sitcom about some lads locked up in a prison camp in Frankfurt. Yes, Hogan's Heroes or Harry Boland's <laughs> Heroes. It's there somewhere. Uh, but yeah, how do you how do you pronounce it? Fra- Frognock. I go Frangok, but I could be wrong. Sure. I'm not much it's of a Welsh, Welsh speaker. So no one, no one's going to pull it up on him. Um. So then I think that's the kind of the very early stuff. And I think Boland gets more interesting, similar to Collins, once yeah. the the war starts, the war of independence sort of starts rolling. And am I right in saying his kind of his first exciting thing was the 1919 prison break? Well, his first exciting thing is that he became a, a small business owner. <laughs> I found some, he opened a tailor shop in, around, I think, early 1918. Harry Boland's high-class tailoring, lay and clerical work Oh, on Abbey Street. So that's, I, I don't know, I find it funny that the ad said that that's just the two types of work that there is. There's, <laughs> <laughs> there's enough priests that need stuff washed that it's like a defining feature. But um, yeah, I guess his, maybe his first big quarry. So him and Collins come back from Frognock along with the rest of them and basically... It's the, the, the new IRA. So in 1916, all the leaders have been rounded up, including Dev. But De Valera gets released because he's an American citizen and no one wants to annoy the Americans during World War One. So he's released, but then in May, May of 1918, he's arrested along with 70 other figures who are all accused of um, helping the Germans plot to invade Britain, I guess, anti-German fear is still at an all-time high in 1919. Mm. Now, it does, I think, I'm pretty sure this is made up. Um, they just used it as an excuse to round up all of these sort of Irish figures. Yeah, it's, but, if I remember correctly, there was very little proof for the German part, but we won't go into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, considering, like, he, there was a literal German plot, like, he had done that before and would <laughs> kind of court it again. So it's not you know, in principle, he could have done it, but I don't think he did it this time. Uh, so they get sent to Lincoln Prison in Lincolnshire, uh, along with a whole host of other guys. And at some point, Dev announces that he wants to escape. 
Well, he announces to you know the the Fenians that he wants to escape, and he says he wants to do it to embarrass the British as opposed to <laughs> to get out of prison. <laughs> yeah, of course. The reason most people want to get out of prison. But he said he's lofty ideas about like there's a post World War uh, peace summit in Paris, and Dev wants the Irish question, as they call it, mm. to be on you know on the discussion. And he figures if he escapes and gets there in time, that they'll have to talk about it, which is is pretty bold. And I think it's a great example of uh, how much Dev used prison as a political tool, like both being in prison, getting out of prison, like. It was a huge yeah. political tool for him. Because the prison doesn't sound that bad. I mean, I think initially they get a lot of, they're treated quite badly because people believe the plot. The prison guards believe the plot and the prisoners. Mm. And then after a while, it turns out it's, you know, it's probably bullshit. And then they sort of become exempt or kind of political prisoners, I suppose. Yeah, it's kind of lax, be, treated laxly. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of stories of them, you know, sitting around listening to record players and smuggling whiskey into the place. But he still wants to escape anyway. Uh, there's a few, there's multiple different stories about how he does it. I think it's purposely, there's multiple versions of it that go out. Again, the propagandist. Propaganda, and I think also to try and cover the how they do prison breaks. Mm. You don't want to make that public. Mm-hmm. But there's like, there's very diddly eye versions of it where he's like singing the escape route out the window to <laughs> like Phoenix <laughs> who are hiding in nearby bushes and they're singing back and forth. Uh, but whatever way, yeah, they get the, they do break out. I think the real way he does, he makes a mold of a key. They're sending, he gets a copy of the key and sends it out. They smuggle it out in a drawing, uh, to the boys on the outside who are led by, uh, Michael Collins and Harry Boland. So yes, it's the two of them that are leading this prison break effort. And again, even the actual prison break, I think a lot of it is confused by, um, the Michael Collins movie. Yeah. Which is fairly one sided. Uh, as you would imagine, for some that's named after one of the <laughs> in the debate between Dev Lair and Collins, Michael Collins does fall very much on the Collins side. But in that, they, as part of the prison break, Dev is dressed up as a lady of the night in order to help him escape, which yeah. I don't think that happened at all. But <laughs> um, Boland is there as well. He's played by Aidan Quinn in the film. But I guess this is his first uh, big international. Well, I suppose he was in, 19, apart from fighting in an actual war, this is his first kind of big act of, uh, I don't know, disruption, I guess. He helps break Devil Air out of prison to cut a hole in the fence, use a secret key and sneak him off. And it, and again, as you say, it became a big uh, propaganda coup for the Irish. And it, it did, as Devil Air wanted, embarrass them. Um, and yeah. this was one of the things that Harry Boland was very good at, was propaganda and telling that story and making sure the right story got told. And you see that again and again through his career and through which America will jump into a minute. He's, he's very good at, he could see the power of actions and how that could be translated into great stories. Yeah. He does seem to be a very, very charming man. Mm. Mm-hmm. Would you want to talk about, yeah, his, his time in America then? Yeah, let's do it. I didn't know that then. You were saying he's used, he uses his ancestor's name as an alias when he's over in the States. Yeah, uh, which I just thought was a, a really cool little um, tidbit. And so Boland was sent over with Dev to be sort of Dev's right-hand man, his chauffeur, his assistant, his kind of everything. And they kind of are doing two different jobs, as I understand it, is they're 
playing that propaganda game, telling that story with and getting America on side, but also working with the American um, revolutionary, Irish revolutionary groups to get money and guns over to Ireland. And Boland was a master gun runner by all accounts. Um, yes. He brought the Tommy gun to Ireland. So he's that famous uh, 1920s gangster Tommy gun. So the first ones in the world were deployed in a... It's hard to, I mean, we love claiming stuff to be the first and all that kind of... You do see it written a lot that it was the, the first uses of the, the Tommy gun were in Ireland uh, during the War of Independence and that they were brought over by Boland. But the two of them... Yeah, so, so Dev does like a victory lap of the States, fresh out of prison to kind of, yeah, you know, drum up support for the boys back home. Um kind of get recognition of Ireland as a... They're trying to get recognition of Ireland as an independent state and also raise money for, you know, future war efforts, basically. Which is um, something that which is something that Boland was put in charge of, was managing that bonds and that money and getting it back to, yes. the, to Ireland, which was... It's one of those things that gets sort of said in a sentence, you know, and Boland managed the money, but was a really complicated task. Sure, yeah. But there's another guy, I just want to bring in this other guy because it'll come up later yeah. in the story. Was initially, uh, that job belonged to Dr. Patrick McCartan, who was uh, uh, another, he was a Tyrone man and traveling around in this entourage with Devil Era. And he's uh, <laughs> he's a very funny character in that. Um, so I don't, if you've covered, you've probably covered like the, the Lauren gun running and like the army of the UVF and all that kind of stuff. Uh, touched on it, but not much. Okay. So basically, yeah, Home Rule's coming in. The That spooks the UVF, and they bring in a lot of weapons from, from Germany. And it's known as the Lauren gun running. Uh, but during that, there's this really funny, uh, I don't know, kind of ideological thing where a lot of the Fenians, a lot of the IVF, and we're talking about like Redmond's crew and mm. that sort of stuff earlier on, and like Owen McNeil, and the Irish volunteers, a lot of them see it as a good thing that the, the UVF have armed themselves, even though they're arming themselves to like fight them. Mm. The Irish volunteers, some of them see it as a good thing because it's like the ultimate expression of what they want to do. And from a purely yes. ideological point of view, they're like, this is actually, this is good. This is what we should be doing. And McCartan, Patrick McCartan takes it to the extreme. And there's a story of him lending his car to some UVF guys to go pick up guns. So he, <laughs> even though they're going to use those guns against him and his family, he's like, I don't agree with what you're doing, but on a principled level, here's my car, here's a full tank of petrol, <laughs> just drop it back to me when you have the guns. and uh, Which is insane, but it, I, on some level, kind of commendable. But anyway, he runs for election then afterwards in 1980. I don't agree. I don't agree with me shooting you, but I believe you have the right to shoot me kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, he's the right, the ultimate right to bear arms. But uh, the good people of South Armagh, he ran for election there like two years later and they did not forget that uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he helped them run these guns. But he, so he's, he's kind of Dev's right hand man in the States. And then Dev, I kind of cut this bit out of the script, but Dev, these kind of straight right. So they're doing the going around to kind of collect the money for the boys back home, but also they're, they're doing a kind of we're a real country acknowledge mm. us kind of thing, which is how, they fall in with the Russian delegates who are also there at the same time doing the same thing. But we'll talk well, about those guys in a few minutes. And I'll jump in there because there's a great story on that note of trying to be seen as a real country and 
siding with these various different fringe groups, like the Russians you mentioned, and we'll dive into them. There's an amazing story, uh, and I'm sure you've seen the the famous photo of De Valera in the Native American headdress, where Boland oh, yeah. and Dev, Boland and Dev go and meet the Ojibwe people, who are this tribe in 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 America, and apparently it really opens up Boland's worldview. He it, it kind of clicks for him that it's it's not just Ireland; the entire like the empire and colonialism is affecting everybody. Um, and he he writes in his letters that it was like this real moment of we need to create a kind of global. A unified fighting force against colonialism um, at a, at a time when it we it, we didn't not many people thought like that um, yeah, and yeah. he he actually gave guns to the Ojibwe people and it it said it meant a lot to them because this was a, a sovereign what something that believed itself as a sovereign state the the, the Republic yeah. of Ireland giving guns to the Ojibwe nation that was also being wanted to be seen as a sovereign state. So it was like yeah. these two these two little oppressed people kind of ignoring the big America and England and supplying guns to each other. Now, it was only something like five rifles or if even that, but it was a really important um ceremonial thing. And I was chatting to a historian who was went back who was interviewing the Ojibwe people and they still have the guns that Harry Boland lent to them. Which I think it's, is amazing. It is, yeah, and it definitely does lend to his um, status as a expert gun runner. It seems I didn't put that together. I, I forgot that he was in, um, yeah, the famous photo of of Dev wearing the ceremony headdress. But that also seems at odds with if you're trying to appease or cozy up to the Americans. Yeah, the kind of <laughs> last thing you should be doing is giving weapons to the First Nation people. But yeah, fair play to them. Where were I interrupted you? You were about to talk about the Russians. No, that's that's interesting. Yeah, there's, so there is this kind of World War One shakes up the state of the world, I guess, and there's a lot of new countries born, a lot of old countries fade away, and the Russians, you know, they have their revolution in the middle of World War One, and they are now trying to look for. It's kind of, it, yeah, I'm sure there's a fancier term for it, but basically, you know, you, you can say you're a country, but the only way you're really a country is if everyone. Or a majority of people acknowledge you as such, so they're all yes. kind of doing the same, doing the same thing. But Dev, in February nineteen twenty, Dev makes a big speech. The Americans are a bit concerned about the fact that Ireland, because America and England are allies, and they're a bit concerned about the fact that Ireland keeps inviting people over to invade. England. <laughs> uh, you know the, the Germans being yeah, which is fair. In World War One, is the Germans, and then you know before that is the Spanish and the French and. The Vikings and anybody, <laughs> anyone who showed an interest. And Dev is a famous speech, which is a good point. He's in it. He's like, uh, you know, the fish in the maw of one shark does not trouble about the possible advent of another shark. The mouse quivering in the jaws of the cat does not fear the approach of a terrier, but if anything, welcomes it. Uh, which is, he's basically like, yeah, we will keep doing that. But if we're an independent Ireland, we won't care. The reason we keep trying to invite people over to invade England is because we're all so occupied. So, he gives that speech and he references something, America some sort of deal with Cuba at the time that gives him some sort of semblance of um, sovereignty. And he references that, but then that annoys all the hardline Irish Americans because they don't want anything other than total peace. And it creates a big, uh, well, a mild scandal or, or whatever at that time. Mm. So he has to send McCartan 
the guy we were just talking about there, he has to send him back to deal with that. And he gets replaced by Harry Boland. So it's after uh so it's after that he brings in Harry Boland. This is number one money gunman in the States. And the two of them are traveling around. They raise about five million on the tour, uh, which is an awful lot more than the Russians are getting. <laughs> but in nineteen twenty, in April of nineteen twenty, Dev uh makes a deal with the Russians, with the two delegates that are over there. These guys called Santeri, Santeri Nurteva and Ludwig Martins. Uh, I'll just go with Ludwig Martins because that's an easier word for me to pronounce. But so the Irish are raking in the money and Dev basically makes a deal with these two ambassadors uh, to give the Russians about 20,000 US dollars and for security against that money, they get the Russian crown jewels. Amazing. Which are given to Harry Boland personally. So I don't know why they had, well, maybe they, they got, I don't know. Well, anyway, so basically the, these guys can't raise any money from the Americans. They're much more sympathetic to the Irish, but Dev takes pity on them and gives them 20 grand uh, in exchange <laughs> for the Russian crown jewels. So they've been smuggled out of Russia. They were four brooches, uh, gold, pearls, diamonds that belonged to the Romanov family who were assassinated in 1917 after the revolution. So it's a bit great. This is only three years later. Mm. So I guess it's a bit, it's not exactly the soundest move by Dev. It's a bit great <laughs> to be handling these jewels <laughs> at that stage. But so according to the receipt of the transaction at the time, they were worth 25,000, which I think, I, it, I'm sure you have the same, whenever you try and translate money from back then to now, it's hard to figure out what stuff is worth, but a hell of a lot is. Yeah, like you got to imagine the the Russian crown jewels are worth the fact that they came from a family who'd been murdered only only a couple of years previous, so it probably makes them worth more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So whatever it is, is suppose it's presumably covered the twenty grand that he gives them. But so Harry Boland is like he's left in charge of these jewels, and he brings them back to Ireland. He gets home on Stephen's Day of nineteen twenty one. He takes the jewels to his old friend. Mick Collins. So apparently at that stage, the two of them have a big argument. There's no, you know, no one really knows, I suppose, at this stage what they're arguing about. But there is a receipt from the Jews signed by Collins on the 6th of January, 1922. So the Anglo-Irish Treaty was ratified on the 7th. So this is the day before. So obviously, like, tensions are very high between the two guys. Yeah, and wow. we talk about, you know, the whole treaty. This is just as a, as a backdrop to the whole big issue between the two of them. Um, and then also there's their love affair with Kitty Kiernan. So the two, the two men, yeah, I guess tensions are high between the two of them and now Boland's showing up at the last hour with these jewels. Like Collins has enough stuff on his plate, I guess, with the jewels. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I've also, uh, yeah, I've taken the, like Russian. <laughs> the God. Russian crown jewels. <laughs> yeah, just throw that in the mix as well to deal with, uh, you know, that dead murdered family over in the Russians. <laughs> Especially when one of the things the, the British were concerned about, and it's something we forget about a little bit, was this risk that Ireland would fall to this communist tide. Yes. And it was one of the things that they they wanted more reasonable people to come in um, and sign the treaty and keep it as a nice sort of uh, capitalist country that, that yeah. didn't go nuts. And so I imagine rocking up with the crown jewels stolen by the communists isn't a great yeah, look. Yeah. 
in a, a tense time. No, it's not a completely unfounded fear either when you look at who was involved in the rising. No, not at all. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, Big Jim Larkin. But well, supposedly Collins says, uh, I'm not going to bother with those things. They can't help us with our case at the moment. I don't want them. The Tsar and his family have been killed. There's blood on the jewels. Or something to that effect. I think he was... Which is fair. I mean, like, it's it's easy to look back in this time and think that they're all sort of anti-royalist, anti-monarchist, but... Have you, if you covered the the original, I don't know, there's, what, what's his name, Prince Joachim I? One of the initial no. plans for the Rising was like, they ha- they go looking for a, a prince or a king to take them over because they're still like, well, obviously you need a king. Well, this was the, the Griffiths idea of matching the Hungarian approach and still having some kind of monarch. Yeah, I guess basically, you know, they, they're not all rabid, like anti-royalists. I don't know why I'm yes. going to Lens to explain to me like, you know what, he might have actually thought it was unsound that Boland had these jewels that be- he'd seen Anastasia. It's <laughs> <He was>, uh, <laughs> like, maybe we shouldn't have taken these. So whatever happened anyway, like they they have a bit of a fallen out. Boland leaves with a receipt for the jewels. So we have that as proof of the interaction or whatever. The Collins signed it that he doesn't want them. So he, so Boland leaves with them. He keeps them safe. Uh, he does... What any man would do in that situation, he's entrusted with some fairly important bits of jewellery here. So he brings them to his mother. Ah, uh, yeah, she'll know what to do. Yes. <laughs> so they grew up, I think you said he was born in Fibsborough. Well, I, I have it that um, he must have spent some time where they grew up in a house in Clontarf as well. Yes, they, 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 he was born in Fibsborough and then they moved to Clontarf uh, when uh, he was a bit older, I think. Yes. Which, I think oh, you're do, gonna, do you want the fun fact or will I give away the fun fact? Are we going to say, we can say it at the same time. They live yeah. in the same house. In the same as house as Bram, Bram Stoker. Stoker. <laughs> that we can edit that so it sync up perfectly. But uh, <laughs> it's very topical. We're doing this. This will probably come out around Halloween. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, the same house. I only found out over the summer that Bram is short for Abraham. Oh. There you go. Yeah, because you sense. don't really hear Bram much anymore. But uh, yeah, so 15 Merino Crescent in Clontarf. This is... Uh, where Boland's mom lived, and it's also, yeah, where Bram lived at some point. So his mother, yeah, you kind of talked about their Republican, they're a big Republican family, and they're no stranger to, you know, if there's any family that's not going to bat an island that their son's showing up with, you know, <laughs> with some crown, crown jewels. Of, uh, recently communist Russia, like, oh, all right, we've got just the place. Uh, so... It's often the house has often been used as a safe house for like the lads over uh, the course of the War of Independence. Uh, there's a step ladder that supposedly went out onto the skylight, went through a skylight onto the roof, so that people could escape across the rooftops. There supposedly was one of the storage sites for the Hoth gun running as well. So mm-hmm. perfect place to store the jewelries. Apparently, they were kept in different places around the house, but uh, there's like a secret container or compartment in the chimney where they stored them for many years. I wonder, did she ever feel tempted to wear them out on a night out? Oh, you'd have to. You have to. Just once. Yeah, you definitely have to like just wear them out in the town once or twice. But yeah, we'll talk, we can talk about the end of the Russian crown jewels a little bit later. But that's pretty much, yeah, so Boland gets entrusted with them and brings them, hides them in his mother's house. But Marino is... This, I only ever talk about this because I just love how it sounds, but Marino is also home of the Marino Casino. Did you ever see that in your travels around Clontarf? No. It's just like a folly. Uh, it's in a park in Marino, but it's called the Marino Casino. 
And so there's a series of tunnels, secret tunnels underneath it that Collins and Boland and the boys used during the War of Independence. So supposedly they used them to test machine guns. The Tommy guns we were talking about earlier on mm, used these amazing. tunnels to, to test them out in. But um, so did you want to talk about the the love triangle between... Well, I was going to segue, I think, well, maybe a good way to segue into that is, so obviously Boland had spent quite a lot of time in the States with, yes. with Dev, going around, making his money, kind of causing trouble between the American uh, Republican movement. They, they, Dev and Boland did not do a great job of unifying that group, but he's doing all of this and is kind of away from the country while Collins is involved in the treaty negotiations, while the war is getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And so I always find it really interesting to sort of what if and imagine if Boland hadn't been in the States with Dev, would he have maybe been more on side with Collins and the treaty? Or was he always just coming from that hardline Republican background that he would never going to to bend? But yeah. either whatever happened when he arrives back in the in Ireland, it is to this tension with, with Collins, his supposedly his best friend and you... You do see the letters that he writes about Collins. They they seem to they they love each other. They they yeah. compliment each other a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's nuts. But but obviously, so they were were split on the treaty. They'd argued about the crown jewels. But then, famously, there's the love yeah. triangle. If there wasn't enough drama in all of this, yeah, to to begin with, you throw in a love triangle. He is. It's it is fascinating that they're like friendships forged on the battlefield. And they spend this time locked up in a camp together. And then basically, as best friends, take two diverging paths. They're almost like the polar opposites at the time. One goes to London to like get heavily involved in treaty negotiations. And the other goes to the States, where he's just surrounded by... And there is an element of like, you know, the Irish-American Fenians are getting annoyed. But like, they don't live there. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like they will, and they were but, generally more Republican. They were more hardline yeah, because they yeah. they weren't on the ground seeing the realities of the fact that exactly yeah. wasn't going to win. Um, and it's almost a beautiful split between like Boland and Dave go to the like ideological hardlined, never actually have to live in the place, you know, fantasy land. And uh, Collins goes to the actual what it's going to have to look like. And it's not inevitable like that that would have happened to either of them. Like, no. I always find it interesting that Collins was very anti-Griffith originally. He thought he was, Griffith was too soft and too, yeah. not hardline enough. And over time, Collins, the the practical thinker that he was, yeah, came around to the Stepping Stones idea. While Boland never did. But Boland's just hanging out with like Dev and <laughs> raising money for yeah. all these people who've become very far removed from the, you know, what's happening back in, in Ireland. But uh, it is a bit, it's a, it's a great setup for a story. Even there's a famous photo of the two of them. But we were just looking at the start there, the photo of the three boys, Collins, uh, Dev and Boland together. There's all the, that series of photos of Collins and Boland uh, at Crow Park, like throwing in the, I was trying to find what match it's from. I think it's the Leinster Hurland final, but they're throwing the slitter in to open the game. And they're like, through best pals. And then they do head off in these diverging pads. And while they're, while Collins is in London and, and Boland's in America, they're both writing love letters to the same woman back home. <laughs> which, they're both writing letters to Kitty Kiernan. Which you, I you assume, wouldn't write it if you if you were if you were writing this as a movie. Yeah. It it, it almost it doesn't do, seem yeah, believable. It doesn't because I'm sure a lot of people watched the Michael Collins film and thought that that's 
tacked on for just added Hollywoodness. Now, if I was writing the movie, I wouldn't necessarily cast Julia Roberts as the Irish <laughs> love interest of these two men. But it, uh, yeah, it's crazy. So I, the two of them meet. They know Kitty Kiernan from the Kiernan family hotel, uh, the Greenville Arms in Longford. So I don't know which. I, they presumably both know of the other's interests. I'm not sure about that, but when Boland's in the States, he basically writes a letter to Kiernan offering her kind of the golden package, I guess, for that time period. Mm. It's like, let's get married, move to the States. I have connections here. Just kind of like very tantalizing, I can imagine, in the 1920s of like, let's get out of war-torn Ireland and go to, you know. You would have taken Boland up on the offer, is what you're saying. It certainly sounds appealing, but... um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the well apparently she also got uh <laughs> Boland's mother sent uh, a letter to Kitty as well congratulating her on an engagement to her son and signed the letter Which, your future mother-in-law even though there was she no seems, she seems like a, we- a weapon of a woman I, yeah, I yeah. love Boland's mother absolutely and this is again the same woman she's going to show up at Kitty's door wearing the Russian crown jewels being like <laughs> yeah. I need I need that <laughs> I need this wedding to happen she's not a woman you want to cross but uh so while that's happened simultaneously, Collins is writing a letter to Kiernan every day from London. So she doesn't write back. She doesn't write back every day, apparently, but apparently she also never responds to Boland at all. So he kind of gets <laughs> the hint from that, which means I don't know how involved the three of them were together before they left the, the separate ways, mm. but Collins wins the race anyway. So between the two of them, I guess he wins her, her over with his constant letters. Uh, but that's another. So the first time they see each other, then afterwards is with this Russian crown jewels thing. So it's the same, you know. It's like a lot of fights. We've all been there, heated yeah. debate. It's not about the jewels, man. It's not. That's just a proxy. <laughs> the real jewels, Kitty Kiernan. It's not even about the, the treaty at this. Point. It's not about the treaty. It's not. It's about love, <laughs> which is just great. So that all comes to a head in that January, where the the two of them meet each other again for this like meeting about what to do with the jewels. Presumably the conversation about like, why were you texting my girl while you're in the <laughs> yeah. States? But anyway, so this all leads into the treaty, the signing of the treaty, the ratification of the treaty, and then the war. And I think that's where it's, we can, we can joke about these things and it's, it's a fascinating, the love triangle. It's, it's, it's sort of disagreement over disagreement over disagreement. But where it gets sad is and I think because at the moment the show we're very buried in the the nitty gritty of the civil war, and it is I think one of the reasons Boland and Collins captures the imagination so much is because it is that perfect sort of encapsulation of the tr- of the split. You know, you have these best friends um, split over love and split over politics, and yeah, Boland immediately sides. Uh, with the anti-treaty and Dev, which makes sense. As we said, he had been surrounded by hardline Republicans in the States. He'd been with Dev constantly. Uh, and he he really doesn't have a, that many nice things to say about, about Dev when he, uh, he gives one speech um, against the treaty saying, you know, I rise to speak against this treaty because, in my opinion, it denies a recognition of the Irish nation. I object to it on the ground of principle and my chief objection is because I am asked to surrender the title of Irishman and accept the title of West Britain. I object because this treaty denies the sovereignty of the Irish nation. I stand by the principles I've always held that the Irish people are by right a free people. I object to this treaty because it is the very negation of all that for which we have fought. And he goes further than that 
Uh, a few months later, in a letter around July 27th, Boland writes that the country is now under a dictatorship is now the rule and that Mick, Dick and Oney have attempted to assert the function of parliament. So he really swings against Collins, um, even as, uh, so he's very anti-treaty, um, but what we always reiterate with Boland, he was such a, he was loved by all sides. He was such a popular man. He was such a, a friendly guy, for want of a better yeah. term. Um, he spends a lot of 1922 trying to bring the sides together. He was seen as a more reasonable anti-treaty fight. Yeah. And he's he's really hoping that the civil war doesn't descend into violence. But sadly, that's not really how it goes down. It's an interesting point that he is the kind of poster boy for... Yeah, I mean, it's the same with every civil war, but you always hear that like brothers against brothers, fathers against sons is literally this, well, this extended revolutionary period from 1916 to, you know, 1921. It's this group that have fought with each other side by side against the British Empire and then within the space of two or three months turn against each other. Mm. And these two best friends who are now uh, basically high up leaders on uh, on either side of uh, the civil war but um he is yeah i see a lot of quotes of him like being tended as a sort of voice of reason trying to get everyone back together around the table to to talk it out yes and so he he was acting as that kind of he was trying to be that key player and trying to mend the split and he didn't he didn't really my understanding is he didn't really do a lot of fighting but he was briefly the quartermaster of the anti-treaty ira and yes probably because of his history as a gun runner and a man who got you got your arms yeah but he never was he wasn't like say liam lynch or that who was really leading fighters um yeah apart from that one time that he was leading fighters but yes <laughs> yeah yeah he's he's more of a, a negotiator an ambassador i guess he's kind of there's weird stories that he's seems simultaneously I don't know, a man on the run and also a, a, a man about town if that like he's <laughs> He's kind of, we'll it's, talk about it, I guess, as we get closer to his, his uh, well, spoilers, but he dies. <laughs> he's kind of this weird dichotomy in that he's, you know, it's very wanted figure on the far side of the, the treaty, wanted by the government, but he's also just hanging around it seems like a very, public meetings. It seems a very classic, like, Irish way to be on the run. Like, yeah, sure, ah, yeah, yeah. sure, sure, I'm on the run. I'm, you, like, I'm only on yeah, the run yeah, at yeah, the yeah. weekends, though. During the week, yeah. we have the, like, I'm mostly hanging around Clantarf, but... So yeah, they, they, after the four courts, surrounded the four courts, the Republican forces take over Blessington in Wicklow. So this is around like July 1922 when this is Boland's, I think his only, yeah, military, uh, sort of hands-on experience. He's the quartermaster there. But that's finished by the 5th of July. They recapture the town. Joe McGrath, the national troops take it over. Harry's brother, Gerald, Jerry or Gerald, um, who's one of the founders of Fianna Fáil. Uh, he gets captured, but Harry escapes. And by the middle of July 1922, like the city, this is again getting into the like this area surrounded. The government's mopping up dissident anti-treatyites around the place. Mm-hmm. But Boland's going between. He's supposedly like sleeping rough in the hills of uh, of Dublin, sleeping around the Wicklow Mountains. At some point during this period, he writes, uh, "Can you imagine me on the run from Mick Collins? It's ludicrous." And he also writes shortly after that saying, I will be the first to be killed because Mick knows that I know too much about him. Mm. So, and, and so you can start really hearing the 
how that relationship seems to have soured a little bit. <laughs> That's what war will do to two boys, I guess. But, so from this, I guess July is the sort of transition period where he goes from he's getting involved in the military leadership. He's now on the run, properly on the run, hiding out in the mountains, uh, writing little notes in his diary about how <laughs> Mick is going to kill him. So, and, and this is reflected across the country where the civil war wasn't one big moment. It, it kind of simmered for a few months and it looked like maybe sure. we could avoid it, maybe we could not. And then in around July, um, post the election where the, the provisional government felt like they had a mandate, things, they started cracking down a little bit and it, things got serious because of a whole lot of reasons that we don't need to get into now with down to pressure from the British, down to the, anti-treaty side acting up a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it means that as Harry then gets more involved in that side, he is sadly not long for this earth. Yes. So at the end of July, Saturday, July 30th, and this is where I get, he goes from this, uh, you know, gaucho Spanish civil war, like living in the foothills. They, they just sort of gives up on that and now he's spotted in the city. He's dining in Jamet's restaurant that evening. So he's just in the city again, I guess. Maybe they do get the weekends off. Yeah, you're going to get tired. You're going you're gonna to want to, you want to go to get nice dinner eventually. Sure. Uh, so this, his, his, his movements are very public that day. He's, uh, he gets a train in the afternoon from Amiens Street, uh, which is later Connolly Station, which I guess is funny. They hadn't renamed them at that point. It might have been mm. Street Station, but uh, that's a little fact for people. All the stations in the south are named after the uh, dead 1916 revolutionaries. But uh, So he's either accompanied by a man or followed by one. It's unclear at this point. So there's a couple of different scenarios as to what happened next. He ends up in Scaries anyway. He gets off the train at Scaries. One suggestion is that this is just a distraction to hide his real destination. His mm. real destination may be to meet Joe McLevy in Belfast, which seems unlikely as McLevy was uh, in Mountjoy Prison at that point. But <laughs> that'll, that'll do it. But yeah, so maybe he was intended to head all the way to Belfast to meet up with someone and then hopped off. Another theory is that he was supposed to meet Michael Collins, who was in Dundalk at that time, investigating the, the Dundalk prison break, which uh, we covered on our own show, is a very funny period of the Civil War. Have you gotten to that part yet? No, tell me more. The, it's made the, the jail. We, we actually, myself and Jason, got to do a live episode there last year for the centenary of the breakout in the jail. It's now like mm. a music venue. But basically sure. the two sides just would break into the jail and arrest the other side and put them in prison and then just switch over back and forth three or four times in the space <laughs> of a week. So it was, yeah, so Collins is up there dealing with that at that point. So it suggests that this could be a secret meeting with Boland going up to meet him uh, and then also finding out. So Collins had come back to Dublin, finding that out halfway and leaving, hopping off the train to get the scaries. There's also mentions that he was going to meet with Frank Thornton or Joe McGrath. Uh, so there's some, maybe this is meant to be some meeting. And Frank Thornton being one of the senior members of the sort of the intelligence services, the Irish intelligence services. Yes. Um, and related to the squad. So again, yes. secret meetings, maybe. Yeah, with Collins or Collins related men. Yeah. Which I don't know. It took doesn't make a lot of sense like people seem to be pointing to the evidence that he was very public and open with his movements to imply that it's a secret meeting doesn't make any yeah. sense 
the fact yeah, the, yeah. the fact that he was so blatant about his movements must mean that he was meeting up with Collins's men. But but if I understand it right, we we really don't know. We we just no. know that he was in the Scaries hotel, yes. and the government forces found out about this. They knew he was yes. there. But we find out about it, and, and you've mentioned it, that he was using an alias in the states. He's no stranger to spymanship. They they've been on the run a lot. They they've knew been on the to... run. They, he's pulled a James Bond move here. Where he walks into Scary's hotel and he's like, yeah, "The name's Boland, Harry Boland. Check under B." Do you, do you think there's a little bit of naivety here from him? Like he's always painted as this optimist, as this positive guy. And I wonder, and this is me armchair psychologizing a man dead a hundred years, but a, a sense a, a similar to Collins, how Collins went down to to Cork and was like, "They won't shoot me in my own country." Yeah, uh, I wonder was there a sense that Boland didn't think that they would actually come from even even as he's writing, Mick will have him killed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder did he believe it? Did he did he think that those, the war would get that bitter that quickly? I don't think. I don't think so. And then, well, as we will we'll talk about, maybe he was right. Like maybe it wasn't meant to be because this, just like everything leading up to this point, there's multiple scenarios that could have happened because we don't actually know. But basically, that night of July thirty first, he books himself into the hotel. The national forces, the government forces, raid the hotel, and he gets shot and wounded, uh, and he dies from his wounds the next day. But there's multiple. Well, there's basically two trains of thought that it was an accident. Mm. Or that yeah. he that he tried to escape and was shot down. So yeah. it seems more likely that it was an accident, which does play into like maybe he was right to think that he could walk around and that he wouldn't be gunned down in the street. But then he yeah. accidentally was gunned down <laughs> by yeah. you know an overzealous, inexperienced troop. Or maybe he was wrong and they did you know follow him to the hotel and shoot him. And there's a, there was a lot of confusion or a lot of, again, myth-making done around who had killed him. Because for sure, immediately, yeah. immediately the anti-treaty started using this as a, as a propaganda thing. And which yeah. is kind of, there's maybe something poetic in this and that Harry Boland was such the propagandist, such the, the storyteller. And yeah. as soon as he, even the way he speaks to his, is it his mother and his sister on his deathbed? Yeah. And he says, he knows who did it, but he won't say. It was a friend of yeah. his and he doesn't want... There was a lot of... There <laughs> yeah. was, uh, if I understand it correctly, there were a lot of different accounts of what Harry Boland's last words were. Yes. But they all kind of play around that theme of, I know who killed me, he was a friend of mine, but I want you to forgive him and I don't want any repercussions for the man. Which is also... And this is pure, if we're getting into the armchair 100 years ago stuff... It's also possible that his, you know, his mother and his sister are no strangers to this this game either. It's possible mm. that his last dying words were "fuck, fuck, oh fuck, ow, shit, <laughs> yeah, they got yeah. me," and that they spin this kind of like, yeah, this civil war myth of like, I know who it was. It was a friend. I was, you know, I was kissed in the garden by Judas, but I don't want and any repercussions. Like that's no, yeah, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but that is also a kind of very powerful story for that time of during the civil war and you could imagine his mother kate boland again she was a serious republican she was come came from a long line of fenian stock they knew how to use a martyr they knew how to use a death to their cause you can yeah. totally imagine her coming up with this 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 story of of trying to bring together what she is watching these young men fracture around her and start killing each other yeah. you can imagine her trying to to, to use the death as a means of of maybe bringing people together, which was what Boland had been trying to do that whole year anyway. Sure, yeah. Kathleen is his sister as well. She says that uh, he told her it was a man that 
he'd been locked up with after the Easter Rising. Mm. So it, I mean, it's it's possible it's all true and this is how it happens, but it is also, again, it's like good at this sort of turning or crucial point of the Civil War that it's this call to like, it was a man I was locked up with after we did the 1916 Rising. Oh, it was one of my brothers in arms that I spent. It was him that shot me. And it just kind of really highlights the... And I think what's what's so sad is is we do have what Collins wrote about. It. He wrote to Kitty Kiernan yes. about Boland's death. And what he says is, it's oh, it's it's just, it does get you. He writes, <laughs> yeah. but it, I passed Vincent's hospital and saw a crowd outside. My mind went into him, Harry, lying there dead. And I thought of the times together. I had sent a wreath. I suppose they would return it torn up. Yeah, like um, it's yeah. Ha- it. It doesn't speak of someone who's like, yes, we got the bastards. Oh, for we're winning sure. this yeah. war. Yeah. It, it, you can you can feel that like the the sadness in in all, from all sides. Yeah, this is and, his friend. Yeah, they went to the hurling together. <laughs> and the funeral again, classic of these Republican funerals, yeah. was huge. And biggest funeral of all time. <laughs> Every funeral, but, the biggest funeral of all time. But what was sad, it feels like it, in 22, it was a bit like that. It was like, this is the biggest funeral yet. This is Harry Boland is dead. If we killed Harry Boland, like it can't get worse than that. Yeah. And then within a month, Griffith is dead and they have an even bigger funeral. And oh my God, Griffith is dead. It can't get worse than that. Yeah. And within a few weeks, Collins is dead and it's sure. the biggest funeral yet. Like it's, I think what sometimes we forget is how quickly this all happened. How many yeah. of these senior leaders from both sides were just, were gone. And, yeah. and, and some of the, like Boland, as much as Collins was a, a super intelligent, super good organizer, a great pop propagandist, a great, like he had been around the States telling a lot of stories. It, it just seems like quite a loss to the Irish, this new Irish country that he was, he was to die when, when we kind of needed the likes of Boland and Collins. And I think people focus on Collins a lot because he's obviously the, the big guy. He's got the movie about him. But sure. so many other people died that we really needed as well. And I think that's part of the tragedy of the whole thing. Yeah, I think it's, well, Harry Boland kind of always gets overshadowed by Collins in his life. But it is that, because it's the same. It's He's got a mysterious death, which is all these intriguing, you know, it's perfect fodder for storytelling. But it comes, yeah, just a couple of weeks before Collins gets assassinated in his own mysterious manner. And that kind of like, mm. yeah, Trump's, Trump's Boland again. But yeah, the summer of, the summer of 1922, I guess, is a, is a big one for the new republic. A grim old time. A grim and old so that's, time. And so that's kind of Boland's story there. We've crammed it together very quickly and, and not done yes. the man justice. But from like old school Republican stock, part of the fringe the whole way through, who rises up the ranks does a lot of good work in America, raises a lot of money and has this amazing relationship with Collins throughout that really typifies the the split. And so that's kind of, that's his story. But if I'm right in saying it's not quite the end of the story and that the jewels come back in later? The jewels come back in later. I realize I've written a lot about this <laughs> for the end, but the, well, basically, yeah. So he's, he refuses to tell his sister, Kathleen, who shot him, but he does supposedly say hang on to the jewels until a party comes into power that can bring about a united Ireland. So they hang on to the jewels until 1938 when 
de Valera is back in power with Fianna Fáil. And at that point, Kathleen hands over the jewels to to him. Uh, Dev's secretary is also her brother at the time, like uh, Gerald Boland. Mm. So they figure it's fine. They get a receipt for the jewels, which comes in handy a couple of years later, because basically public opinion massively shifts against Russia in the 30s. In the early 1920s, when this other stuff's happening, there's still sort of sympathies towards the communist movement, the workers' struggle, the mm. Soviet way of life. By the time the jewels come up again in the late 30s and 1940s, the Catholic Church has really turned people against communism. So by the time they come back up again, they're much more of a secretive thing. And basically, so she hands them back in 1938, and it's a decade later in 1948, politicians basically just the short version story is people start slinging abuse at each other about being communists and at some point patrick mccarthy a, a popular thing a popular oh yeah thing it's to do as, as popular today as it was back then they were just <laughs> calling people commie at some point this back and forth patrick mccarthy who we talked about earlier comes up and he's like well what about the time dev took the <laughs> russian crown jewels and gave them 20 grand and this is 1948 and this is the first time it comes into public discourse that the Russians owe us 20 grand and that we have the crown jewels. <laughs> so when Kathleen Boland hands them back over, she gets this receipt and supposedly she's like extremely, <laughs> extremely delighted to have gotten the receipt because it's 10 years later and the, the, the finger is pointed at her and, you know, her deceased brother, Harry, that they kept the money or that they still have the jewels and she's able to whip out the receipt and be like, I, I gave them back to them 10 years ago. <laughs> so he's the one you need to be talking to here. And then he publicly acknowledges them and then there's kind of a long... He acknowledges that they have them. The Russians don't acknowledge that this ever happened for quite a while. Um, so basically, they eventually get the money back and, and hand the jewels back to the Russians. But it's a lot less money back, though. A lot less money right. back. I think they get... Eventually, it gets to saving face territory and they get close to the... They get close to the original amount that they handed over, but there's no regard for inflation that yes. happened yeah, in the yeah, yeah, intervening yeah. 50 years or whatever. Um, Joseph Stalin and the communists famous for not caring too much about inflation. Oh, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. By the time it, they're trying to hammer it out, Stalin, you know, a famously reasonable man is in charge of <laughs> Russia. So they, yeah, they're kind of happy to get what they, they get. And then the Jews get sent back to Russia. And in 1988, Kathleen Boland's daughter, Eileen Barrington, so Harry's niece, Eileen, uh, she travels to Russia to see the jewels. They, she'd grown up in Klantar for the jewels would have been stored and she would have seen them as a kid. So she goes to go, uh, she goes to look at them and the Russians sort of deny any existence of them. They go to the Kremlin where there are jewels in display. They don't match up to the picture that she has of these jewels. So it's just another final little bit of the mystery is like, what, where what, they ju- what, whose jewels, wh- whose, whose jewels, jewels where did Harry they? have the whole time? What the hell were they? That the, did we just give the Russians twenty grand for no reason? <laughs> if they were the real jewels, where did they end up? They don't seem to go back to Russia. Um, you know, far be it from Russia to be involved in some sort of sneaky subterfuge. But yeah, that's the final bit of the story. As Harry's niece heads over to go see them in the Kremlin and can't find them. Amazing. Um, yeah. So that's Harry Boland and the Russian crown jewels. It's. I think he's such a fascinating character that I said I'm being guilty of having to leave on the chopping floor. And I think it's, the crown jewels are such an interesting side plot, I guess, to, to his life, but a great example of a, a fascinating story and one that 
gives us a lot of facets into what was going on in Ireland at the time, but we don't tell a lot. And I think that's just mirrors poor Harry Boland's existence. He gets forgotten about, even though he was so important and such an interesting, gregarious, friendly and energetic person. Like, I don't think the the movement would have done as well or would have gotten as far without the likes of Boland. No. It's about when you consider that the other, you know, charismatic, charming uh, face of the movement is Dev. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, without Boland, if Dev is one of the main voices out there. It, uh, You're in trouble. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot less uh, palatable. But um, yeah, he's an interesting, interesting man. Yeah, that was, a. I found it a fascinating chat. And for the people who listen to my show and maybe haven't heard yours, that's, the stories like that about the Russian crown jewels is yes. just the kind of stuff that, that pops up on Shite Talk history all the time that I love. Yeah. People are always messaging us asking, like, why do you, you don't do any civil war stuff anymore? Is it, well, we kind of avoid the exact stuff you're covering because it's so in depth and we, we kind of focus on the more salacious. We're the tabloid news of a uh, podcast. <laughs> we focus on the, oh, who's banging Kitty Kiernan and who's robbed the crown jewels? Whereas you do a very, very good job of covering the, um, the, the actual history aspects of a, of a very important period of, of Irish history. So between the two of us, yeah, you've got, if you listen to your show, then you've got the context to understand some of the stupid jokes that we make about, uh, uh 1919. And if you need a break from all the grim Civil War period stuff, then you can go listen to to your show and and learn about Joe Dolan and the uh, yes, who's but Joe Dolan is a fascinating man. <laughs> it, like talk about Harry Boland, like yeah, man, Joe Dolan is such a bizarre story. Well, it's been a pleasure to to chat to you and yeah, a proper grown up sign off, and maybe we'll do yeah. another one again sometime after a lot For of sure, yeah. Ahead. Well, cheers. Sweet. And chat to you soon. No yeah, listen, good luck. Thanks for listening. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're enjoying it, give us a review on Apple Podcasts or tell your friends. It really helps. If you want to go further, you can support the show, get ad-free listening, and bonus content on our Patreon page. Simply follow the Patreon link in the show notes or visit our website, thehistoryofireland.com. You can also get in touch through the website or on Facebook and Twitter. Always great hearing from you guys. And if I've made a mistake, please do let me know. History of Ireland was written and produced by me, Kevin Dolan, with music by Liam Doyle and additional help from assistant producer Eva Murphy. This podcast was recorded in the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded.